Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. So the Bible reading is uh, from Acts 4.32 through to 5.11. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from, for, from, for from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite, from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought, it to the, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With, this wife's, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest of it and put it at the the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have, have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the man of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Thanks, Tom. Cheers. Uh, keep that part of God's word open in front of you. Uh, before we sort of open the word tonight, uh, just to kind of affirm and back what Tom's asking us to do, get involved in uh, this university campus or uh, university college ministry. Uh, I don't know, like the Lord's really laid it on my heart as just a member of this family here and uh, situated in this location, a real heart to reach out to uni students uh, who are literally on our doorstep, sort of across the fringe of North Adelaide. Um, there's churches around the world um, who are sort of in university towns, you know, like Oxford, Cambridge and things like that, where there are some really strong university churches connected into those places. And um, I, I reckon it'd be really great if we could be like one of those, you know, like Adelaide's not really a university village, but um, we're close by. And uh, the statistics show that 80% of people come to know Jesus before the age of 20. Um, over 90% of people come to know Jesus uh, before the age of like 28, 30. So there's a massive opportunity uh, to proclaim Jesus, love people in the name of Jesus, and God willing, see people saved and uh, live for Jesus forever. So, I don't know, great thing to be part of. So I'll back you, Tom, I'll back Red Frogs, and uh, yeah, talk to Tom over dinner tonight, I believe. Um, after we, we, we gather together tonight. Uh, I'm Simon. If I haven't met you, um, I'm Simon. I go by the name Jacko as well. I've just been saying how boring that nickname is. My last name's Jackson. There's a million Jacksons in the world. It's not original to be known as Jacko, but uh, I'm Jacko. And uh, I'm, part of, I'm part of the family here. I get the privilege of teaching the Bible from time to time. And uh, tonight we're back in the book of Acts Um, Our series, Unstoppable, How God Uses the Church to Change the World. If you were around City Light, North Adelaide, late last year, we cracked open this wonderful book of Acts, uh, written by Luke, a historian, 
uh, a doctor, um, and he's meticulous in detail. Um, He wrote Luke's Gospel, so if you know the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the accounts of Jesus' life, he writes his Gospel, which is really like the the beginning of what Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, did for the world. Um, Acts, which is like the sequel, is part two, and it's basically the ongoing work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in the world, as God, the Father, Son, and Spirit uses the church to change lives, to change the world. So we're in Acts, and we're picking it up again from chapter 4, verse 32, in this sort of section, probably for the next couple of months. Um, If you remember, if you know your word pretty well, um, Acts chapter 1 is really, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is really the the kind of the key verse of the book of Acts, um, where Jesus commands his disciples to remain in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then he says, you will be this shabby bunch of 12 people uh, in front of him. You will be my witnesses. You'll be my ambassadors from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, and effectively, the book of Acts just kind of is like a ripple. We just watch as the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ripples out from Jerusalem uh, into the next area, Judea, then out again to Samaria, and then to Rome, uh, to the ends of the earth, which at the time was kind of like the, the end of the earth, right? Rome. It's not. Adelaide's the end of the earth, right? No. Um, but uh, here we are. Um, we've, we've, many of us here tonight love Jesus. We've come to know Jesus. We are saved by him. The gospel's made it to Australia. Um, it began in Jerusalem. It's rippled out. So we, we follow how God uses his people, the church, to change the world. Uh, we're back in Acts tonight. And uh, I think we should pray. Ask God by his spirit to help us understand his word, live it out. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here tonight. We thank you that you've brought us here and we pray that uh, you'd help us to build each other up in our trust in you. Father, we praise you and thank you that you speak to us. You're not silent, you're not far off. You've spoken to us through your son, through your word. And Father, we we now ask that through your Holy Spirit, You'd help us to be attentive, help us to be expectant, that you would speak to us, address our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bones tonight. So, Father, help us to hear you, to see you. And in Jesus' name, we pray that we would love you. So change us tonight, we pray. Put what we hear tonight into practice for our good, our joy, the good of others, and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a picture of a guy on the screen. Does anyone know who that is? Anyone know? No? I'll tell you, that is Frank William Abagnale. Anyone know that now? Just like, oh, of course. No, like, that's Frank William Abagnale. He is one of the most famous fakes and con artists of modern history. Um, for a time, during the 60s, there you go, it's just like confirmed, there you go. Um, during the 60s, he defrauded heaps of people, right, out of like two and a half million dollars with fake, fake bank checks. Uh, but he grew, like his boldness kind of grew. You think that's bold, right? He got even bolder. Um, he decided to then impersonate uh, a, a pilot, like an international pilot so that he could travel all around the world. Back in the 60s and 70s, like, some of the American airlines would fly their crews and staff like, for free when they weren't at work, and so he took that. So he acquired a uniform. Simply, all he did was call Pan Am Airlines, tell the kids, he just said, I've lost my uniform. They sent him a new uniform. He faked his employee ID, he faked his, you know, he forged his Federal Aviation Administration pilot's license, and guess what? He flew over one million miles as a fake pilot. On one occasion, he's on a plane, the pilots invited him up into the cockpit for a bit of a look around and a bit of a chat, and then said, hey, would you like to take over flying the plane? Which he went, yes, please. So for a few minutes, he flew the plane. Um, after that, like fearing he was going to get caught for defrauding two and a half million dollars out of people, being a pilot, he then thought, no, no, no I'm going to up the ante, right? He, he pretended to be a doctor, a medical practitioner. So he started practicing medicine as a fake in a Georgia hospital in the US. 
He befriended, how did he do it? He befriended a, a doctor who was living in the same apartment complex as him. He forged the necessary documents, the university degree, degree registration forms. The doctor he befriended um, agreed to allow him to be the acting supervisor of the registrars and interns in the hospital. And so it was kind of cool, right? He didn't have to do a whole heap of clinical work. He could just stand by and organise everyone else's. And so, at least for a little while, um, letting the interns, registrars kind of do the day-to-day -day stuff while he just supervised. He was a famous fake. And, and like, he's a fascinating guy to study, right? In some ways, he is really intriguing. And a movie was made after him. Does anyone know what the movie was called? Catch Me If You Can. There you go, if you've seen it. Um, you know, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. This, I mean, this guy, William Abagnale, was an amusing guy. He was really intriguing as well. But I wonder, right, if you put yourself on... Hey, Ruth, welcome to church. Nice to see you, just to, just to make you feel... Yeah, there you go. Hey, welcome to church. Great to have you. Um, sorry, that was terrible, yeah. <laughs> a real doctor, yeah, a real doctor. So if you have a cardiac arrest tonight... We're in good hands. Um, not in William Abagnale's hands. But I wonder, like, if you're on that plane, right, where William Abagnale had the controls, I mean, yes, it's kind of amusing, yes, he's an intriguing character, but if you were, like, you know, if, if he had the controls of the plane, if you were a patient under his care at a hospital in Georgia, I doubt you'd find him so interesting and amusing. It's not so funny when you're close to those who are being fake to you. Well, tonight we're considering again the Lord's really attractive, beautiful, wholesome, generous, giving new church, this brand new church established by Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit back in the first century. And it's a beautiful picture. I think you'll agree, if you've read through the book of Acts, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, you'll agree. It's just wonderful to see how the power of God's Spirit innovating, changing ordinary human beings, following an extraordinary God to do things like Jesus. It's remarkable. It's a beautiful picture. And again, I think as we come back into the book of Acts, we're going to be asked the question, are we, are we as God's people here in this place going to walk in step with the Spirit like this early church and be generous, be like them? But tonight we also consider the Lord's attitude when he sees precious members of his church being fakes, putting up facades, living out lies. And I wonder whether we could be like that tonight. We might look good, but is there falsehood, lies, is there sin amongst us? Well, let's uh, crack into this book tonight. As many of you know, again, we've been studying the book of Acts, and, and just in the, in the course of four chapters, we've seen how the bold and courageing, courageous preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And as the risen Lord Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit, a beautiful new community is created, a new family of believers from all different backgrounds. And it's a wonderful community. It's ultimately a community that begins to change the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's attractive, it's inspiring. They're devoted to God. They're, de they're devoted to the prayers. They're devoted to the teaching of the apostles, those men who were with Jesus from the beginning, from his baptism to his death to his resurrection, who then carry on and pass on who Jesus really is. They're, they love his teaching, and they love each other. It's so cool. Um, you know, and I reckon if you were sort of outside of this group, right, and you looked on at this group, you'd go, wow, I want a bit of what they've got. Like, they just looked at the goods. They were beautiful. And as we come back to Acts chapter 4 tonight, in the beginning of chapter 5, Luke gives us this other window into this community by way of a contrast. By way of a contrast. Because up until now, as you read the book of Acts, the spiritual attacks, the things that might throw God's people off their mission to take Jesus to the ends of the earth, those attacks are coming from the outside of the church, beyond the group. And what's that, what that's done is kind of bring that group more tightly together. They love each other more. They love God more deeply. They love his teaching. They're kind of, you know, glues, like glued together. But tonight, for the first time, we see a threat to this church, to its mission coming from within the family, this, within this community. But to feel, to see, to experience the contrast, let's first think about what 
wholesome things were going on. And by way of this first point tonight, this is my first point, attractive and wholesome, this is the contrast, versus destructive and deadly. Let's think first about what it looked like for this church to be attractive and wholesome. I mean, what was it? It was so attractive, so wholesome, so inspiring about this bunch of people. Well, in a nutshell, people of this church, this first church in the first century, they cared more about people than they cared about their possessions. They seemed to care more about people than they cared about their possessions. They were more committed, more caring about hanging on to one another than they cared about hanging on to what they owned. And have a look with me, chapter 4 and verse 32. On your iPhones, the other things you use and the Bibles you've got. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. These people now had in their hearts, right, by the grace of God, a new attitude with regards to their possessions. They didn't say, this MacBook is mine and it will be never used by anybody else. They didn't say, this is my car and no one else will ever have ownership or use of that ever. They didn't say, this is my house, it's for my intimate little family and no one else is welcome through the front door. They actually felt, though, what they had was to be used for the care of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So much so that some of these Christians, these brand new Christians, would like sell blocks of land they owned, houses from time to time as needs arose. That's something, isn't it? Sitting so loose to their houses and land and things that they would just sell it as a need arose in their family. Incredible. Like, you don't see that very much. Like, it's miraculous generosity. And the result? There were no needy people among them. Like, Luke's a historian, right? He doesn't muck around with words. He just tells it as it is. And he says, in this family of people in the first century on planet Earth, Jerusalem, there were no needy people. Makes me think of that moment just before Jesus preaches, as it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus is about to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew records that in a little place in Galilee, Jesus is going around healing all different people of all different ailments and diseases. And Matthew says explicitly, there was no one who had a sickness or an illness or anything like that in this particular place. There was a moment on planet Earth this earth we live on, where there was a region where doctors were out of business. Physiotherapists had nothing to do. Speech pathologists were just talking to each other. Brilliant. And so, Matt, and so Luke here says, because of the generosity of the people of God in Jerusalem at this particular time, changed by the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, there was a group of people like us, maybe, where no one, no one had any needs. This is this is phenomenal. But the reality is, like, stuff like this still happens today. Even amongst us, even in Australia. I was serving at a church you know, in Sydney, up on the northern beaches, uh, several years ago. Uh, and we, there was this lady in the congregation who loved Jesus she just, and loved mission. She loved seeing the gospel go out to all kinds of places. And she was a massive supporter of what was known as the Church Missionary Society, CMS. And uh, we had missionaries connected to that and, uh, from our church, which we supported financially and prayerfully and things like that. And, and this lady purchased a car, a really kind of fancy car, actually, and she just maintained it. She kept it in her garage for when any missionary from the, connected with CMS came back to town so they could just drive around the streets. You know, she maintained it. She purchased it for the use of these missionaries. Other people I know have bought houses in a similar way, so that when missionaries come back, they've got somewhere to live, somewhere to stay. Um, it's incredible. A really good friend of mine, his name's Mark Barry. Um, he's a minister in Sydney as well. Um, he's 16 year, he had a son, he, he's 16 years old. When he was 14, he was diagnosed with a severe brain tumour, um, treatment after treatment after treatment, and uh, he was in and out of hospital for operations, chemo, radio, etc. And... Uh, um, 
during his time, sometimes when the chemo, uh, was, the treatment he was receiving was coming, he, was, he would just be so weak and he'd often lose, the, like, lose his legs. He couldn't use his legs. And one day the doctors just said to Mark and the family, look, we can't discharge you know, your son because um, if we, you know, he, he can't climb any stairs and you know, at your house, leading up to your house, you've got like 12 steps. We just can't, he's not going to make it. And uh, Mark put out a prayer point and said, we just... We, we need some help here. We want our son home. We want to care for him. One of the families in the church just called up and said, you can have our house. We don't have any steps. We'll come around. We'll swap houses. So they just exchanged houses. Um, and so Mark's family packed their bags. They moved into this house, which had like one step about that big into the front. And the other family just endured this 12 steps day after day for months. Just radical generosity, right, for the sake of the family. So that they, their son, who now, unfortunately, he died at 16, um, he's with the Lord, uh, but they could enjoy their moments with their son. These miraculous things that people do, so there was no need amongst. It happens, even today. And, and the, the amazing thing, right, what we see in the book of Acts and what we see, I think, coming even today is that none of this stuff was, is like imposed by the law of God. Like it wasn't like the apostles saying, you must be really generous and you must do X, Y, and Z and give this much money. There was no external obligation. This was not some Christianized form of communism. No, it was the Lord's Spirit convicting individuals from time to time as the Lord wrote it on their hearts, this new way to live. Reminds me of Jeremiah 31 where God promises, I'll pour out my Spirit, I'll write my law on your hearts. It's not on the wall anymore. It's on your hearts and you just want to do it. And what's that law? It's the law of love and generosity. It's so attractive. You know, even more so, like when you, you know someone. You may not, you know, they may not want to be known, but then you see, you know someone who's just acting and living generously, like that lady in North Sydney, like the family who swapped their houses. Um, you just don't forget it. It changes us, shapes us. In the first century, right, this little church, downtown Jerusalem, they also had members, who, members of the church who gave really generously. Um, and one of them we met in the passage was called Joseph a Levite from the tribe of Levi. And the apostles had deep affection for this guy. Um, they nicknamed him, did you catch that in the passage? They nicknamed him Barnabas. I reckon if the apostles were Australians, they would have called him Barney, the really encouraging bloke. That's what I reckon they would have called him, Barney, the really encouraging bloke. Why? Because Barney sold a field for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He sold what he owned because he cared for people. He sold what he owned because he cared more for people than he cared about his possessions. Now, we're told, right, he was from God's historic people, the tribe of Levi. It was a very special tribe. They served a really special purpose in the life of God's people. We won't go into that right now. But what it does, it provokes a possibility for me as I read this passage. I can't prove this, right? So I'm going out on a limb. You can challenge me over a barn me after church tonight as we move next door. But it's a possibility. There's a diagram coming up on the screen, I think. There we go. Beautiful map. There we go. So God, right, when God was establishing his people, the Israelite people, um, God graciously, as part of his establishing, as part of his loving them, he gave them a land to live in, the promised land. And that was to be a special, precious possession of God's people. And God's people was formed of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and 11 tribes in the, the body of God's people. They all got a portion of land. We won't go through each one, right? But, you know, like Manasseh got a better land. Gad, the people of Gad got some land. Reuben got some land. Simeon got some land, you know, and so on and so on and so on. But the tribe of Levi didn't get a big portion of land. The Levites were spread out sort of all among the people of God in the promised land, in special towns. And, and, and around those special towns was like a band of land, right, about a kilometre wide, which was given to the Levites, the tribe of Levi in that particular place. That land was not to be sold, that was to be given in perpetuity uh, to this people in that old kingdom. And Barnabas... Barney, the really encouraging bloke, he was from that tribe, yet he sold the land for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Sure, he lived in Cyprus, not in the promised land, but maybe, just maybe, he held on to that 
field in the promised land, hoping that one day God would restore the fortunes of Israel and restore the kingdom of God on planet Earth, you know, like the, back in the good old days of David and Solomon. Maybe that was his hope. You know, just in the glory days. I can't prove this, right? But maybe Barnabas is selling that bit of land, and by selling that bit of land, he's basically saying, you know what? I can sell that bit of land because I belong to a new kingdom that is not part of this world. I belong to the new people of God, a people of God formed from every corner of planet Earth. I have a new, marvellous, imperishable inheritance that is coming for me in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It's, it's the new world to come, and so I can sit loose to this. I need, I'm not waiting for God to restore his rule on this world like that. You see, whether Barney right, had a, a block of land in Cyprus or whether the block of land actually did come from the promised land, we don't know. But whenever you let go of something like that, like Barnabas did, for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ, for, the, for their good, whenever you sell your possessions or give up something for the sake of the kingdom, you're saying something, aren't you? You're witnessing to something. You're saying in a very concrete way that you believe, that you're part of this movement. You believe in the kingdom to come. I believe in the kingdom to come. I am not, no longer, my future is not of this world. I belong to Jesus and his future new kingdom. And so I can sit loose to things. No wonder Barney was such an encouragement. This is a wonderfully encouraging part of God's word, to see this man, ordinary man, changed by the Spirit, sit loose to his possessions and sell stuff for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he knows like Timothy, like Paul writes to Timothy, we came into the world with nothing, we leave the world with nothing. So like, our hope is somewhere else. Not in our stuff, it's in Jesus. He got that, pretty sure. It's a massively encouraging, encouraging story. One commentator, it's on the screen, he wrote this. This was back in the 1500s. It's really relevant to us today. We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not to be moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We, in our day, are content not, to just, not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their own possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's possessions common property for those in need. In our day... Such is the inhumanity of many that they begrudge to the poor a common dwelling upon the earth, the common use of water, air, and sky. Big challenge. So what about us? Do we actually believe in the kingdom to come? Do we demonstrate in practical ways, not just in theory, not just with words, that we care for people more than we care for our possessions? I wonder, like, I mean, are you prepared to talk to the Lord about this in prayer? And ask him, Lord, work in my heart by your Holy Spirit that I might be generous. Make me like Barney. I mean, I'd love to have a church full of Barneys. Make me like Jesus, who for our sake became poor so that through faith we might become rich. Are you willing to ask God to do that? I struggle with this, Right? Like, I want to hold on to stuff. Um, last year, I'm a cyclist. Last year, uh, this year as well, I rode the Challenge Tour, raised money for the Cancer Council. Last year, I, um, I rode it as well, and I didn't even know this, but if you raise a certain amount of money for the Cancer Council, you went into a raffle to win a bike. Uh, the bike was worth about $4,500. Really nice bike. And so I went in, you know, so classic, right? Did the ride. Two weeks later, I got a phone call from Alice at the, at the Cancer Council, and she says, oh, hi, Simon, how are you going? I'm like, yeah, great, thanks for just driving down the road. And she said, oh, you know, how'd the ride go? Oh, it was good, it was really hot, blah, blah. Oh, the main reason I'm calling is to let you know you won the bike. And I went, what bike? I think she was really disappointed that I didn't sort of crash the car in excitement, you know. I went, oh, what bike? Oh, you know, like the bike that, you know, if you reach a certain amount, you go into the draw for, you've won it. And I said, oh, great, thanks. 
I think she was devastated. Like, <laughs> anyway, I went that afternoon, I picked up this really nice bike. Any, for me, any new bike's a nice bike, right? Irrespective of how much it costs, it's just great. New bike's beautiful. Um, picked it up, put it on the roof, took it home, I just started stroking it. It's like, oh, new bike, you're beautiful. I found it really hard to let it go. I didn't need it. Um, but one of the things we did with the money, um, one of the... <laughs> One of the things I, I realised was I already have a really nice bike. I didn't need a second bike. And I have um, a wife, three kids and a mortgage, so I really can't hang on to it. But we also support missionaries over in um, Namibia and, uh, and they're struggling uh, to keep up their giving or their, their support. So I thought, why, why would I hang on to this thing when we can sell it and give some money? I got robbed, right, like selling this thing to some guy. Some guys in Victoria just going, cha-ching brand new bike for very little, but, but I struggle with it, right? I wanted to hold on to that bike big time. We hold, we, I struggle with this. You know, and I know, right, there are people in this gathering here tonight who you struggle to, to give. It's hard for you to give. In fact, you can't give it all. Um, you're in need. And, and we want to be a church that knows you and loves you and cares for you so that you are no longer in need. But many of us are able to give. The question for you is, are you prepared to walk in step with the Spirit and be generous like Barney? I'm really aware, though, that, you know, me, the preacher up the front, goes, hey, guys, how awesome's Barney? He had a block of land and he just dropped the money at the apostles' feet and look how awesome he is and we all should be like Barney. Just go out and sell your car tonight and, and then you walk away going, I feel terrible because I can't be like Barney right now. I want to encourage you, right, just to take small steps towards generosity. A mate of mine, Steve Krieger, it's coming up on the screen, he's a really good mate of mine, um, he's, he, did, he wrote this during the week, the Couch to 5K model of Christian discipleship. Anyone doing the Couch to 5Ks? Anyone have no idea what the Couch to 5Ks is? All right, let me tell you. Basically, you know how we all just sit around now watching Netflix and, you know, Stan and listening to Spotify and just sitting on the couch doing that? and we probably should be doing a bit more exercise, like there's this movement, right, is how do we go from watching too much Netflix, knowing we should exercise, to ideally running 5Ks non-stop, basically that's the plan. So getting off the couch to running 5Ks, you know, without stopping too often. And the idea is like, I don't know, there's probably not many people, who here feels like tomorrow morning you could wake up and go, yeah, I'm going to do couch to 5Ks, I'm going to run 5Ks before I go to work. Anyone can do that? Yeah, right, there's probably a few, right, you, you crazy people. So, you know, um, but most people, right, can't just get up off the couch and run 5Ks without stopping. It takes a bit of effort to kind of move from, you know, 500 metres without stopping to a K to 1.5, etc., etc. Steve's big idea here, and I think it's really great, is rather than putting out these almost unattainable goals, let's, why don't you just start, Steve, by giving $1? You know what? Find out. We've got online giving. Just give a dollar. Give five. And then as you grow in generosity and as you get to know Jesus better and as you walk in step with the Spirit, you, that'll grow in you, I reckon. So I think it'd be great if we all did sort of couch, not to $5,000, right? Um, but, you know, or maybe you can. That'd be great. But, you know, just let's, let's, take, let's encourage you to take little steps towards generosity. Um, and I think that Steve's really great there. He, he talks there about not just generosity, but evangelism and hospitality, all that sort of stuff. Just rather than just sort of going from zero to 100 or 5Ks, let's just take little steps. So if you're here tonight and you're not giving, but you can, um, I'm not asking you to give everything. I'm asking you to take a step forward. Trust Jesus towards him. Um, and we'll see how we go. Um, that's the early church, right? It's attractive, it's wholesome, it's inspiring. Um, but against that backdrop of inspiring, attractive, and wholesome, we get a pretty sort of, well, destructive and deadly story um, and reality. It's, an, uh, it's scary, it's sobering. Um, it's like a jolt. It's like an electric shock. Um, so from verses 1 to 11 in chapter 5, two members of the congregation um, on a, this particular day, are struck down dead because of what they did, just like that. 
It seems that this wonderful new family is a dangerous and deadly place to be if you're living a lie, if you're being fake. Um, some time ago, a friend of mine sent me a link to um, a website, Tom Rayner's website, um, on 10 ways churches drive away first-time guests. Um, on the list were like unfriendly members, which we don't have any of them here. Um, you know, poor signage, didn't know even how to get in the front door, dirty toilets, all that sort of stuff. But can you imagine, right, turning up to a church for the first time and seeing two members struck down dead before you because of their sin? I'm thinking on the drive home, you'd be seriously looking up a different church to go to next Sunday, right? Um, This is serious stuff that's going on. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, we read, None of the rest of them dared join them. No wonder. Yet the Lord, interestingly, like, despite this event, the Lord keeps growing this family in number. You see, if you're not really on board for the Lord, you don't want to be mucking around with his precious family. So what was at the heart of Ananias and, what, and Sapphira's actions? What, did they, what was at the heart of what they did? What was the essence of it? And what does it mean for us? In essence, they lacked integrity in God's precious church. They were living a lie. They were being fake, putting up a facade amongst God's people. You see, they sold a property just like Barney, the really encouraging bloke, did. They didn't have to. They could have kept it. They sold it and brought some of the money from the sale to the apostles to distribute it amongst the church. That's what it means in chapter 5, verse 2, to place it at the apostles' feet. The money's there, they distribute it to those they're aware of who are in need. Now, they didn't have to give all the money. In fact, they didn't have to give any of the money from the proceeds of their sale. There's no law. If they'd walked up to Peter and the apostles and said, hey, we're going to give 30% of the sale of our house, that would have been really encouraging, yeah? That's great. That's not what they did. They lied. They said they brought all the money from the sale and they said that in a public way where in fact they kept some for themselves. They were being fake. By putting up a facade, they didn't act with integrity. And the question you've got to ask is why? What was motivating these guys? I don't know exactly. You know, perhaps they wanted the praise of the church like Barnabas got, and maybe they wanted a nickname from the apostles. And maybe they were greedy. It's a very dangerous thing to do. You're better off, I would think, being outside of God's church than in it and not acting with grace-fueled integrity. See, the Lord's church is very precious to him. When Jesus looks down from... When Jesus looks down upon his church, his church is the apple of his eye. It is precious to him. He spilt his blood for the church. His body was broken for the church. It's precious to him. And in fact, when Ananias and Sapphira did what they did, it was actually not motivated by God. It wasn't motivated by the Holy Spirit. Not by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the Spirit that... It was the Holy Spirit that produced the wonderful picture and the work of Barney. But another spirit is at work and was at work in Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says to Ananias in chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Church, this church, perhaps for the first time we see, is being infiltrated and attacked by another kind of spirit. The father of lies, the father of fake, the evil one. And that's the nature of evil, right? It, it presents a good facade, but behind the scenes is all manner of darkness and destruction and, and death going on. It was lies, right, that caused humanity to fall back in the garden, Adam and Eve. And so lies have no place in the life of God's new humanity. It's a full-on picture. What does it mean then for you, for me, for us? What does this incident mean for you and for me, for us as the people of God? It means that we ought to fear and tremble if we're living a lie. 
putting up a facade, not acting with integrity. The Lord cares deeply about the integrity of his church. It reminds me of my sister. She's 18 months older than me. Um, many years ago, she was, she's now married with a couple of kids, but when we were much younger, um, she was dating this fella. Um, and uh, he was a really nice guy. He was charming. He was, he was good-looking. He was intelligent. He was sporty. He was friendly. And, you know, he'd come around for dinners at our house, and we'd all he'd leave, and we'd go, what a great guy. He's beautiful. Love him. You know, let's, let's, he's a good guy for, our, for, our, you know, for my sister. But one day, a friend of my sister actually had a conversation with me because she'd learned through some of her friends that this guy wasn't all that he seemed to be. Um, she'd heard that this guy had serious anger issues, that he had a problem with alcohol, and he actually had a history of violence towards women. And I feared at that point for my sister. I felt really, 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 really protective of her. He was a guy who was good on the outside but had really dark issues going on in private and so I talked to her. You know, and, and even more so, right, with, with God and his people. I can understand why the Lord watches over his church and takes very seriously those who act without integrity. Now, of course, like... We all struggle with integrity from time to time, right? Like, we're, we're not perfect. And we will never be perfect until we meet Jesus in the flesh and see him and enjoy him forever in the new creation. That's when we'll be perfect. But we are, as God's people, to pursue integrity. We're to pursue holiness. You know? we, that's, that's, that's part of what it means to be a Christian, is to keep growing to be more like Jesus. We say that phrase all the time. That just means to grow, to be set apart more and more for him, to, be, to look more like Jesus, to sound more like Jesus, but never to stop trusting Jesus. It's always his work. We all struggle from integrity from time to time. I once heard a preacher talking about the car park miracle. Have you ever heard about the car park miracle? Um, anyone heard about this one? You might have. Um, you know, it's you may have experienced this today. I almost did. You're on your way to church, right? It's World War III with the children. Um, and I'm losing my temper with the kids. And that's just boiled over into me having a barney with my wife. And rah, rah, rah. And you arrive at the car park and you get out of the car. And all the way down Byron Street and Glenelg, you're still at each other. Rah, rah. And then you turn up at the front of church and you go, bing. And you're smiling and you're happy. And even though the kids are killing each other, you go, yeah, we're great. It's beautiful. It's a silly example. I mean, I'm not saying we all have to air our dirty laundry and linen before everyone in the church all the time. That's, you know, that would take a very long time, I think. But, but there can be issues amongst us that are a lot more serious than the car park miracle, where we actually are putting up a facade. We may come to church, put on that good exterior, all the while being aggressive and violent at home, perhaps battling desperately with alcohol addiction or having an affair with a colleague at work or in the office or lusting after stuff or just greed. We might come to church, play the good Christian, but behind the scenes, I don't know, we're just racked with a gambling problem. We might preach from the pulpit, faithfulness to our spouses all the while, hours spending watching porn or having an affair. So many ways we can live a double life. Living a lie, and the Lord knows and he cares for the integrity of his church. You know, Ananias, right, and Sapphira, they had an opportunity to come clean and own up. May have been a completely different outcome and story if they'd said, well, yes, actually, but they didn't. Sapphira could have pulled her husband up when he said, hey, let's keep a little bit, but she didn't. But more than that, right, Ananias could have actually just not led his wife into sin in the first place. He could have loved her a whole lot better. You know, I don't know, you may, you may feel like you're sitting here tonight and the Lord's speaking to you. You know that you've got issues to deal with. You know, stuff going on that others can't see. And as 
Brother in Christ, I want to strongly urge you tonight to confess it. It's nothing worse, nothing worse than keeping this stuff in the dark. That's what, that's what Satan wants you to do. And he wants you to stay in that horrible pit of feeling awful about yourself so that you become completely ineffective for the kingdom, that you grow to hate church, hate Jesus, hate yourself. There's also nothing more freeing than in light of the gospel, in light of God's incredible love, mercy, and grace towards you to just confess it and bring it out. Bring it out into the light that it can be smashed. J.C. Ryle says, Kill, be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. And I've been there. I've been in a place where I've not been killing sin and it's eaten me alive. But yet, bringing it out into the open, it's like I experienced resurrection. It's, if you're here tonight, I mean, putting on a facade, fooling a whole stack of people for a while, I want to encourage you to come clean with the Lord. It's one of the beautiful things about Jesus. He loves you. And he knows you better than you know yourself. I'm not saying, you know, if there's stuff going on in your heart, it's dark and destructive, that you need to come before the congregation and confess it. You don't need to reveal it to the entire congregation, but you know, I want you to step forward out of that darkness into the light. And that might be with a trusted friend, here tonight even. Maybe before you step into the barn me world next door, you might just want to stay and, and talk with someone in the confidence that if you're in Christ, you're forgiven. You might want to do that. Or perhaps, perhaps tonight you, you know of a brother or sister in Christ who is living out a lie and you perhaps need to have a word to them. Lovingly, tenderly, truthfully. Not because you want to lord it over them, because you want to see them restored and experience the freedom and joy of being in Christ. Don't do what Sapphira did and simply join in with their sin. In love, come before them. So they might be restored and enjoy Jesus again. We've been reading um, and studying James in our DG. I should say our DG. I've sort of just only recently joined it. I've been invited probably reluctantly into the group, but anyway, no. Um, but... James says this, we haven't got there yet in our DG, but he says this um, as an encouragement to us who are in Jesus, but perhaps battling with a sin tonight. Um, James says, chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. You see, God the Father, by his grace and mercy, is creating a new family for himself in, for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A family precious to him, created through the work of the Holy Spirit, to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, to grow in generosity as we change the world together. A family where we pursue holiness together. A family where we confess our sins to one another. A family marked by grace and mercy. A family where we're never more than forgiven sinners. You know, Bonhoeffer, the great Bonhoeffer says, our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus is a community project. I love that. We're not to do the Christian life alone. We are here together. Our sanctification, our holiness is a community project. And we do that in light of the endless grace, the scandalous mercy of God. It's a wonderfully inspiring and attractive place to be when the Lord works in that way through his people. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Actually, before we do pray, I thought it would be good actually just in the quietness of our own hearts actually just to come before the Lord. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps you've just got some stuff, some business to do with God tonight. 
Perhaps you might want to just come to God and just confess some darkness that's in you that you don't like very much and you know is not good for you. And ask God confidently, he will forgive you, right? So maybe just take a moment in the quietness of your heart, close your eyes, I don't know, pray, confess some sin, and then I'll pray. Let's do that. The Apostle John writes, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we praise you and thank you that in the Lord Jesus, our sin our big capital S in our rejection of you and our little s sins, those things that flow out of that rejection of you, are dealt with, past, present and future. We thank you that on the cross, Jesus paid for all our sin. Father, we realise that this side of the new creation, we are far from perfect. We continue to sin But we praise you, Father, that your spirit lives in us and is renovating us to be more like Jesus. So, Father, we pray that your spirit tonight would indeed do that. Father, help us as your people to keep in step with the spirit. Father, grow in us fruit. Father, we pray particularly for fruit of love, love for one another concern for one another's walk with you. Father, we pray that you would grow in us a real spirit of generosity. Father, we pray that you'd help us to take little steps in that direction. And Father, may we be a bunch of people who are like Barney, people who know that we've been saved by Jesus that we are now destined for the new creation. Father, I pray that you would help us uh, to be like Jesus, who when he was before Pilate made that wonderful confession that his kingdom is not of this world. Father, I pray that you would help us to make that same confession and that it would not just be words, that it would translate, Father, into practical actions of generosity that declare that we do truly believe that. Father, make us a generous people. Father, make us a connected people that we would know when people are in need and that we'd be willing and empowered by your spirit to fill that need. We want to be a church like this one where there was no need, where people had all their supplies. So, Father, we pray. Help us to take your word seriously. Help us when we do sin to throw ourselves back on Jesus. Help us, here we pray, in your, by your spirit, to be more like him. For our joy and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.